Hello, and welcome to Weber Gallagher's Workers' Compensation Academy, a podcast where our attorneys discuss how to manage risk to improve your bottom line. Now to our attorneys to tell you about today's featured episode. Hello, welcome today to the Weber Galler Workers' Compensation Academy Managing Risk to Improve Your Bottom Line podcast. My name is Jeff Seifert. I am a partner in the Harrisburg office of Weber Gallagher. My special guest today is Dr. Robert Maldi. We are going to be talking about the art of the independent medical evaluation. Um, For our listeners that are unfamiliar with an independent medical evaluation, Initially, those are exams that are allowed under the Workers' Compensation Act for an employer at a reasonable time and place of a medical examiner of our choice. Dr. Maldi, I'd like you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, hi, Mr. Seifert. Uh, well, we've worked together for a long time, um, probably in excess of 10 or 15 years, I think, uh, all together. Um, well, I'm a physiatrist, uh, and I do independent medical examinations. Uh, I graduated from the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia in 1980. I did four years of medical school at the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, Virginia, and then my four-year residency training program at Temple University Hospital. After I graduated, I was director for the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where I worked until 1998, and I'm currently here in private practice on Route 309 in South Allentown. And doctor, in in that practice, um, tell us a little bit about the types of injuries that you see. Well, I'm a rehab doctor, I'm not a surgeon. About 70% of everybody that I see in this office has some kind of disorder of the spine, neck pain or back pain. They've either had surgery or they haven't had surgery. And my job is to do the rehabilitation to restore an injured worker to the highest level of function. I look at my patients like industrial athletes. If I'm treating an athlete, my job is to get them back on the field. If I'm treating an injured worker, my job is to get them back to work. And Doctor, let me, I've always been curious as to this. So we're talking about independent medical evaluations today. How did you start doing independent medical evaluations? Initially, my career was focused on inpatient medicine, uh, and I ran the Department of Rehabilitation. But I found that I really enjoyed outpatient musculoskeletal medicine. Uh, I started seeing a lot of injured shoulders and knees and backs. And I'm not a surgeon. I'm a rehab doctor. And these are the same type of injuries that are commonly seen at work. I've also been the company physician for another companies, and I've treated a lot of injured workers. And so the specialty of physical medicine is really musculoskeletal medicine and the majority of injured workers have injuries to their necks or backs or shoulders or knees. When that started becoming more frequent, I was often asked to give an expert independent opinion on someone's injury, the diagnosis and ability to work. And from there it just grew to the point where I now do about 10 or 15 independent exams a month. Do you also testify on behalf of your patients? Well, I have an active clinical practice. I probably see close to 80 to 100 people uh, a week. 
and a lot of them have some type of injury at work and sometimes they'll ask me to testify for them so I have a practice where I represent my patients about 50% of the time and 50% of the time I'm talking for the defense. Okay. Now, Doctor, me, I personally find that uh, the independent medical evaluation is a tool that allows employers to manage their risk. I, we, we frequently see independent medical evaluations done in cases, whether they be litigated or non-litigated cases. Um, and I think that it's important that our listeners understand the importance of getting a strong IME. Um, and I wanna talk to you about that. How can employers and insurance companies and attorneys um, prepare you to uh, provide us with the most credible, most competent opinion? And I initially wanna talk about um, choosing you as a physician. Um, the area that you're in, do you do IMEs all across the state or are you limited to a certain geographic area? Well, I only practice here out of my office. Um, a lot of physicians travel to different places to do independent exams. Um, some of them travel to do that. I've been fortunate enough and then I don't have to do that. Um, if they want me, they come here. Okay. Um, and with respect to that, how long have you been doing independent medical evaluations? Probably since uh, the early 1990s. And have you always testified on both behalf of your patients as well as independent medical evaluations? I think my reputation is such in the 30 years that I've been doing this that the majority of people would say that I'm fair and do uh, both sides. Okay. Doctor, so in preparing an independent medical evaluation and requesting you to do an independent medical evaluation, I guess we can start with the first thing that uh, you may review, and that would be the cover letter. Um, one, do you do you rely on cover letters in performing independent medical evaluations? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think a strong cover letter is absolutely important. But what I want to see from the cover letter is, number one, what has occurred before? I mean, has an injury been accepted or not? Sometimes I've seen IMEs by physicians where they write there was no work-related injury, and yet there's already been uh, an injury accepted. So that's the first thing. Tell the doctor in the letter what is happening with the individual. Are they working? Are they not working? What's been accepted? What hasn't been? And clearly define the questions that you want answered. That's the important part. I mean, has there been prior litigation? Sometimes I'm sent independent medical exams and there's already been a judicially determined uh, result and they don't even tell you that. So I think that's the importance of the letter. What is not as important in the letter to me is the attorney's interpretation of the medical records. I think that's for me to do. So from my point of view, tell me what you want to know. Tell me what has happened before, uh, but don't tell me what the medical records say. I can do that. Um, and with respect to that, perfect segue into um, what types of medical records do you like to review in conjunction with your evaluations? Well, the most important medical record is a record that shows a pre-existing condition because that's the first question that you need to know. Unfortunately, unless there's been litigation, you don't have subpoena power, so we don't have the records that pre-exist. 
those can always be obtained afterwards, and I think that has to be kept in mind when you're reviewing the records and doing the exam. The next most important record that you want is the record most proximate to the incident event. Um, was the person seen in the emergency room that day, or was it three weeks later? So those are the records that are most important. And then, of course, you want the most current records. In terms of diagnostic testing, it's very important to see those records, and I think some of the mistakes that a lot of independent medical examiners do is they rely on the interpretation of the imaging studies. How important are the actual imaging studies to you? Uh, I think it's an absolute necessity. You know, when you look at the judges who are going to make these decisions, they have a tough, they have a tough job. And so I think they're always looking for information. How well prepared was the independent medical examiner? Did he take the time to review the studies himself or did he just report you know, what he saw in the records? And the same with the person who may be testifying for the individual. Did they take the time to look at the records? Because the judge may simply make the decision based on whether the doctor took the time to review the individual studies. So for that point of view, I think it's important. So, Doctor, I'm going to give you, uh, I want to stay on this issue of the actual diagnostic studies because, at least in my experience, a, a lot of cases hinge upon uh, the interpretation of those. Now, um, there is some school of thought, and, I, and I've heard actually some doctors testify to this as well as opposing counsel cross-examine on this subject, but don't radiologists receive the training and interpretation of those studies? And I guess the ultimate question is, how often do you disagree with the interpretation of what a radiologist sees in a diagnostic study? Well, first off, I would never hold myself as a radiologist, but I read all my own studies. I think you have to. And if you're gonna do an IME, you have to do it the same way that you treat your own patients. Now let's talk about diagnostic studies because too many times in my experience, the legal process looks at them as absolutes. So whatever is, is written in that report is the truth, when in fact it's not. Every test has limitations on sensitivity and specificity. These are actual mathematical calculations that have to do with how good a test is picking up an abnormality. So if an if a x-ray, for example, is not very sensitive, it's only going to show bones. But it's pretty specific. If you have a fracture, you have a fracture. That's pretty easy to understand. Now when we take a look at a lumbar MRI, the problem is, is it's much too sensitive, but it's not very specific. So you're going to see all these abnormalities on the imaging study, but it may not have anything to do with the patient. So I think that has to be kept in mind, because really, when you're going to give an opinion on impairment and causation, you have to put the two together. If a person has, for example, a left-sided disc herniation in association with degenerative disc disease but only has right-sided findings, I don't think your MRI is very valuable. The other thing that's important when you're looking at a diagnostic test is, is certain diagnostic tests are only as good as the person reading them. So not all radiologists are perfect. They make mistakes. Not all EMG doctors are equal. Some are very good at doing EMGs and some are not. So I think when we interpret diagnostic tests, we have to look at it in the context of the big picture. What are the clinical findings? What's the history? Take into account the imaging tests, but don't rely on them as the sole determinant.
You use the term causation, doctor, and that's another topic I'd like to discuss with you. When you're asked to address the cause of somebody's problems, what types of things do you look for in the records? When looking at causation, I think the most important determination is what is there a pre-existing condition? And that's why we have to focus on that. And sometimes I've had people come in and, and tell me they have back pain. I ask them if they've ever had a problem before. They say no. You have them undress, you lift up the gown, and you find out they have a 10 centimeter spine surgery scar. So uh, the pre-existing conditions are absolutely uh, important, but not always available at the present time. The second most important factor in determining causation is the mechanism of injury. How did it occur? And I find that in my practice, the judges also find this very important. And I think, you know, a minor injury should not result in complete devastation of someone's life and, you know, the inability to work at all, whereas, you know, more significant injuries can result in more significant impairments. So I think the mechanism is absolutely crucial. The next and third most important is the consistency in the medical records. What does the first medical record show? What is the history? Is it consistent with what the individual told you? Because many times what you'll hear is the individual's version, which has gotten better and more embellished and more specific over time than it was when it first occurred. And that's uh, something that I see over and over again. So that's important. Um, and I'd say those are, the, those are the three things. So the pre-existing condition, the mechanism of injury, consistency in the medical records, and the relationship to the diagnostic tests. Let me start with one of those that you covered being the pre-existing medical records. If I want to prepare you in a case where I'm asking you about causation, um, how far back do you want to see those medical records? 10 years, I think, is, is reasonable. Um, you know, you, it may not be relevant, but 10 years is a, is a, good, um, a good starting point. And what are you looking for? If, if I send you a case and somebody now has a back injury and 10 years ago they had a similar back injury, do you find that to be particularly relevant? I do if they're continuing to treat for it. Uh, you know, I did a case just recently where a gentleman said that he had hurt his back, denied any uh, problems with his back before, and we found out that he's been on chronic opiate therapy for 10 years with escalating doses of Oxycontin. So, you know, in that case, it's, it's, it's very relevant. Someone who's had a remote uh, back surgery or shoulder surgery or knee surgery, but has never seen a doctor in five years, is not taking any medication, is functioning independently uh, without any kind of work restrictions, I think that's important that you'll have to look at this as perhaps a new event. When you talk about mechanism of injury, um, how about witness statements from factual witnesses? Do you put a lot of credibility into those if do you have witness statements that contradict what the claimant tells you happened? You know, I think it's all part of the big picture. People have agendas. You know, a, a coworker may have some kind of uh, prejudice against the individual and, and may not remember things exactly uh, or accurately. Um, employers often see things through their own eyes. Employees see things through their own eyes. So. You know, I'm not sure that employee witnesses and statements are as independent or as important as the medical record itself. I think it's important, but not probably as important as the medical records because of the biases. 
And one of the biggest problems is recall bias. When you ask someone what they heard or what they saw, and it may, may be remote from the event, may not be very accurate. Also, I want to ask you about emergency room records. Um, frequently, we'll see emergency room records in a case, and the history may not be as accurate as, as what the, the injured worker said happened. Um, in your experience, doctor, how important is that initial intake at an emergency room and the way that the emergency room records list the mechanism of injury? You know, I'll never forget uh, several years ago when I was live before Judge Baker and he called a halt in the proceedings to ask me questions. And one of the questions he asked was, doctor, what is the relevance of the emergency room report? And it's a great question. Um, because while we're relying on that initial emergency room report, there are issues. Number one, who took the history? Was it a nurse? Now, how trained was the person who took that initial intake? We don't know the answer to that. And I think the next issue is, what is the importance of the visit? Emergency rooms are there, for the most part, to save lives and handle emergencies. I'm not sure that our emergency room personnel who is overwhelmed at times with numbers and, and the severity of injuries, is very concerned about the mechanism of injury of a lumbar strain. So I, I think you have to look at it with a little bit of bias. I'm not sure that that initial emergency room history should be relied on in its entirety. I think it's a part of the piece of the puzzle, but I'm not sure that those personnel are gonna take the details that we need as a part of our job. Another topic frequently we address in independent medical evaluations is under the legal terminology, the aggravation versus recurrence. Um, I'm assuming that's something that you're very frequently asked to address, and I'd like to talk to you, what types of things do you look for, and what is your uh, medical definition of an aggravation versus a recurrence? You're right, I get asked a lot. Um, as a certified independent medical examiner, I'm trained in the medical definition of terminology. I'm not sure the legal definitions are exactly the same. However, I'll give you my interpretation based on my training and experience. The word aggravation implies that there has been a pre-existing condition which was worsened substantially by the incident event. So we use the words substantial and material change. Now, how do you define that? If a person says, I had pain for 20 years, but I was in a car accident and now my pain is worse, what's that definition of worse? Well, pain is always subjective, so you can't rate it. So I think what you need to do is look at the objective studies. So look at the imaging studies before and after. Was there a substantial and material change? Look at the medication consumption. If a person is on opiates before, look and see if there was a change. See if there's been an opiate escalation. See if additional medications were added. If a person has had injections in the past, look and see if additional injections have been performed and what the response to those injections may have been. Look at the function. Is a person completely independent prior and now in some ways functionally dependent, I think that's a substantial and material change. If there's been no change in function, just a subjective complaint and pain, 
I don't think that you can imply the word aggravation. Now, recurrence. Recurrence means that there was a problem before, it has recurred, and then is the same as before and settles down. So that's not a new injury. That's just the same problem, which has the characteristic of flares. Most pain, you have good days, you have bad days. Um, people attribute their worsening pain to the weather, stress, anxiety. Those can be recurrences of a, of a previous condition, but not necessarily represent a new condition. And doctor, what does the term exacerbation mean? A temporary flare. That's my opinion. I don't think it, it really relates too much to our uh, daily work in independent medical exams. You indicated that you're certified in independent medical examinations. What does that mean? What type of training do you have specifically per, for performing IMAs? Well, remember that the certification for independent medical examiners is not recognized by the American Board of Medical Specialties. It's a private governing body. It arose in my career back when uh, Act 57 was established to do impairment ratings. And doctors had to be trained in the, I think it was the third edition back then, into how to do impairment ratings. And what the doctors did was combine impairment ratings with independent medical exams. And this private governing body had a board that was composed of doctors, lawyers, uh, the business industry. And what they did is they trained physicians how to look at the world from an independent point of view, not relying on just subjective complaints, not always going by what the individual said, but look more at the facts. And they train you how to do that. They train you how to testify. Um, testifying is not easy. Um, you know, the lawyers are much better at it than we are as doctors. And uh, what they try to do as an independent medical examiner is treat you, is teach you a few things. One is stick to your guns. You know, be prepared. Know how to answer the questions. And don't be tricked by a lot of difficult wording that the uh, attorneys may throw at you. So be prepared. Stick to your guns. Um, know your medicine, first of all. And be objective. I think those are the, that's what you'll learn in, in being certified. So let me break from... from um the independent medical evaluation at this point. And I want to ask you what we've talked about uh, in the way of analyzing records, reviewing records, reviewing diagnostic studies. Is there anything different that you do in the context of an independent medical evaluation versus somebody that you're going to have an ongoing treating relationship with? I don't think so. You know, I treat them the same way. You know, I don't really think there needs to be a difference. The only difference is you know, the IME process is adversarial. You know, they're made to come to you. And as a result of that, they often have a great deal of what's called symptom embellishment or exaggeration. And there are ways that we try to look for that when doing an independent exam. When a patient is sent to you for treatment, it's not an adversarial relationship, so they don't feel the need to prove themselves to you. So there very often isn't any evidence of symptom exaggeration. So I think that's different. I think that's the difference. When the patient's sent to you to treat, they trust you. You have a doctor-patient relationship. 
When you're sent for an independent exam, it's adversarial, and they don't trust you. This is the end of part one of our podcast, Effective Use of IMEs. Please stay tuned for part two, which will be coming shortly. Thank you for tuning in and listening to Weber Gallagher's Workers' Compensation Academy. We hope you join us for our next episode to learn more about managing risk to improve your bottom line. If you would like to listen to this podcast again, share it with others, or tune into other episodes in the series, please visit our website at www.wglaw.com.